Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, March 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, passenger rail service could be mere months from returning to the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We get the latest from the Southern Rail Commissioner. Then, more medical marijuana dispensaries are opening doors as the industry kicks into gear. Plus, how law enforcement officials want to recruit more women to the force. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Amtrak will soon be running along the Mississippi Gulf Coast for the first time since 2005. When Hurricane Katrina battered the region 17 years ago, Passenger transit was a casualty of the massive destruction left in the storm's wake. But in recent years, negotiations have been underway to bring passenger rail service back to the coast. Knox White is chairman of the Southern Rail Commission. He shares more about the anticipated return with our Michael Guidry. What people see down there now is the first fruits of that agreement, which is it's something called qualification runs. You see two locomotives and a, and a passenger car running back and forth during the week. And what's happening there are uh, conductors and engineers are getting themselves familiar with the route uh, and learning all the different in- intricacies of running a passenger train along that route. And that'll be going on for quite some time. Uh, there's about seven crews to qualify, and each one of those crews takes about six weeks, I'm told. From what I understand, one of the hurdles to get to this point was freight transit uh, and how that cooperation would work out. Can you tell us a little bit about how that dispute was settled? Yes. Uh, So Amtrak and the host railroads sat down, worked out what improvements needed to be done uh, to the track infrastructure, and that that will include mostly some extending some sidings, to allow uh, not only the passenger trains to pass, but the freight trains to pass. And uh, it will also result in a great deal of infrastructure to the four stops in Mississippi, station improvements and things like that, over and above what they have now. And so what what the result of that is, is you'll have a 21st century railroad where freight trains, I think this has been in the news a lot lately, are much longer than they used to be. And uh, this will allow the railroad to be much more fluid, not only for passenger trains, but freight trains as well. 
when the the line does launch and that that twice a day service happens, how many how many cars are we are we talking here for for Amtrak travelers? Well, you know, a, a, a car holds about seventy passengers, so you know, I would assume you would probably start off with three coaches and a, uh, a cafe lounge car um, and and a baggage car probably or or bag baggage dorm car. I don't really know exactly how they're gonna set that up but it'd be something like that um and then it would uh you know schedule wise they don't have that exactly uh determined yet but it would be a, a morning departure from mobile morning departure from new orleans an evening departure from mobile and an evening departure from new orleans so you could go out to bay st louis for a day or you could come out of new orleans and go to uh gulfport go to the aquarium or whatever or it's a great way to come out on a on a Thursday afternoon to any of our coastal cities, spend the weekend, go home on Sunday night or Monday morning. I was talking to some people on the coast, and they really liked the idea of it to be able to go to a night parade. So you go to a night parade in New Orleans. They could they could you know be in Gulfport or wherever, go over the uh, go over that day, go to the night parade, catch the morning train back out, be in their office by ten o'clock. Uh, it really, you, you see all that, it just makes the coast so much more livable. I mean, the, the coast has done a great job of uh, in, of recovering from Katrina and investing in its, in its city centers and its towns, and the train will bring people right to those towns and also conversely make it really neat to be able to live in a place like a Gulfport or Bay St. Louis or Pascagoula and then just go down, park your car, get on the train, go to one of the other cities, go to Mobile or New Orleans, or connect out of New Orleans to a lot of other places, and it just makes it much more convenient. It's been 18 years since Katrina. I mean, that's essentially a generation on the coast without public transit. So in your conversations with with local leaders, um, municipalities, uh, what's the energy like about, uh, you know, this decades-long break from from rail transit and and what those communities are are feeling about its return. Well, they're very excited about it because what what was there before Katrina was a three day a week train that came through in the middle of the night, and people actually rode it. So you know this is something totally different, which is which is twice a day service. They'll be very reliable. That will run from. You know, New Orleans and Mobile and vice versa every day, and and it just it, it's a totally different service, and it creates a totally different vibe and a totally different amount of uh, opportunities for all the cities, and and they're very excited about it. The uh, tourism, the tourism groups in all three states, in in New Orleans and uh, on the Mississippi coast and in Mobile, I've had a chance to talk to them. They are planning on on. Uh, allocating significant resources to marketing the train. They see it as a way to bring in new people that they've never had a chance to market to before, especially on the Mississippi coast. And, and, and again, there's a business component to this in that trying to move people around for job shipbuilding, the different things that go on on the coast. But more than that, again, we go back to the, the cities on the coast have coming out of Katrina have made themselves very livable. Uh, they've rebuilt their downtowns better than ever. Uh, their infrastructure is better than ever. And and by creating this piece of it where I can live in Mississippi and I can easily get to the metropolitan areas of Mobile and New Orleans 
but I'd have to get in my car and drive over there and then come back to my home in a place I might rather live. It, it just really creates a, a, a great mix of uh, livability and increased tourism and increased business. Uh, and finally, can you remind us uh, what uh, we've, we've talked about New Orleans and Mobile, um, but remind us what those four stops along the Mississippi coast are and when transit will be finally available to the public? Well, it's uh, our, our four stops are based St. Louis, Gulfport, Biloxi, and Pascagoula. Those uh, temporary platforms have been installed in all four of the cities, so that part is ready to go. Uh, we, we're just waiting on a couple of other things to fall into place uh, to be able to say exactly when it will start. I know Amtrak would, would love to be able to start it this fall, but that's not official. And, and like I said, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of details that still have to be worked out. These qualification runs have to be done. There's some construction that has to be done in Mobile. And we're still not exactly clear on when we'll be able to start that. But, but you know, we're looking to hopefully, hopefully, this fall, but that's, you know, totally unofficial. That's just sort of a goal. Knox Ross, Southern Rail Commissioner, thank you for talking to us about the upcoming and anticipated return of, of public rail transit uh, along the coast. We appreciate your time and, your, and the information you're able to provide us. Coming up, more medical marijuana dispensaries are opening doors as the industry kicks into gear. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Walk into the Cush Vibe storefront, and Roy Holbrook will be there with a wealth of knowledge and experience. Gummies are different, and I always tell people a lot of newbies will come in and they'll say, Hey, I'm going to do gummies. Gummies are more for seasoned people because when you digest gummies, it turns into 11 hydroxy THC, and that can last from six to eight hours. Mm. <laughs> so I always try to. Paul Brook is the proprietor of the newly opened cannabis dispensary along the I 55 frontage road in Jackson. His store is one of the over 170 new licensed shops selling medical marijuana in Mississippi. It's been a little over a month since the first sales occurred in the state. Melvin Robinson, executive director of the Mississippi Cannabis Trade Association, says there is finally a buzz in the industry one year after lawmakers passed the law establishing the program. Right now, a lot of people are excited. We finally have product on the shelves. Uh, People can finally start selling product. And, you know, it's been a long time coming uh, since the 2020 vote. You know, in November to the Supreme Court striking down Initiative 65, then the limbo that the actual program was in since then, until uh, Governor Reed signed the uh, Cannabis Act in February of last year. So now we're we're finally where we need to be with people being able to sell product. Um, you know, it's, it's just a new part of the of the industry and a new part in this whole journey that we're taking together. 
Uh, right now we have uh, about 3,000 patients, uh, and more of those are coming online now. One main thing that a lot of dispensary owners, uh, they, they, they need more customers. We need more patients, you know. Uh, our uh, process that we have now is uh, it's a good one. It's a good one. could be better, and there are efforts to make it better. Uh, but it's, it's going along pretty well right now. With a patient base relatively new to the cannabis experience, store owners like Holbrook say it's incumbent upon them to provide the necessary education. We really focus a lot on education because a lot of people are new to this. A lot of people, it's their first time coming in. Um, so we want to educate them and give them all the ins and outs of each product that they do get or that they don't get. Sometimes we even tell people, if you go to another store, call us. We'll still help you make that decision because we're based around giving you the best experience mm-hmm. and not you just being a shopper with us. Holbrook owns other stores in Louisiana and has a distribution center in Texas. He says having many years in the industry made the process in Mississippi smoother for him. MPB's Lacey Alexander visited Holbrook at his dispensary, where he told her why he expanded his operations into the Magnolia State. We have a lot of people who cannot afford uh, standardized medicine, a lot of people who do want to try herbal effects. Uh, we have a lot of veterans in our other stores. They are full of veterans and a lot of older people who are trying new methods to just general health and overall taking care of themselves. Uh, I think the more we educate people, the more comfortable they'll be at trying this alternative medicine. And I think it'll be a good approach. We've had some great uh, outcomes with people who try our alternative medication, such as medical marijuana. And I think it could be huge for Jackson. So walk me through kind of the process of opening this store. I mean, how long have you been in the works with this? How long did it take to officially get the product in? Talk to me about that process. We we started early 2022, as soon as they opened it up. Uh, and a lot of it is just getting your banking correct, documentation, turning things in, uh, and being aware of policies and the policy changes to come. So if you can join local groups, I always tell people join Facebook groups, find a mentor. So a lot of times with our other uh, facilities, we found a mentor, we started working with them. We've been doing this for over almost six years. And as we build and gain that knowledge, it kind of helped us come to this market and evolve and interact with the government and learn how to maintain and stay, stay aware of policies and policy changes. And that's how you get your application in and you keep up with making sure uh, your documentation is correct and turn in at appropriate times. And right now, this opening time, was this in your original plans or were you hoping to open sooner or later? Nothing is in the original plans. <laughs> that's the first day of business. But uh, it gave us a chance to get in. Uh, like I said, we got everything in so much faster. We found some good growers with great genetics who knew the industry, knew the plant, had great experience. Uh, they deliver fast and on time, which allowed us to open a little earlier. And one last question for you. This is still so new for Mississippi. As a business owner, as someone who's probably honestly still doing a little bit of trial and error with how new this is, do you feel at all like you're walking on eggshells with this business? Uh, I think once we get the medical car situation in better kind of a better stance. I know they're passing new laws, uh, new litigation. They're hiring more people. I think once that steadies out, we can get more people in. I think the state of Mississippi needs more education to the public about how to get work permits. A lot of people don't know how to work here. Uh, and I think once they get more information on work permits, getting medical cards, the industry will flourish. 
Roy Holbrook is owner-operator of Cush Vibes in Jackson. Coming up, how law enforcement officials hope to recruit more women to the force. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From children's education to gripping drama, documentaries to comedy, MPB Television brings the world to Mississippi. With local stories, cooking, health, and music, MPB Television takes Mississippi to the world. MPB Think Radio, whatever your taste, news, music, storytelling, or how-to shows, whatever your city, Gulfport, Fernando, Meridian, Greenville, however you want, radio, smart speaker, smartphone app, MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Several law enforcement agencies from across Mississippi are pledging to increase the number of women in public safety. Nationally, women make up less than 12 percent of sworn police officers and just 3 percent of captains. At the University of Mississippi Medical Center campus, police have partnered with the advocacy group 30 by 30 to host a conference on the need for gender representation in law enforcement. The organization is committed to growing the number of women in affiliated police forces by 2030. Chief of Police Mary Parody tells our Kobe Vance a diverse police force can better connect with the community they serve. Um, UMMC Police Department took the pledge March 17, 2022, um, so one year ago, and we are at 37% of our sworn members being female. As a female police officer yourself, what does that mean for you? Uh, was it to be able to see your agency make that huge leap within one year, as well as potentially seeing other agencies across the state making that change? It's a good question because I started in policing in 1986 with the city of Chicago. We were about 0.02% women back then. And what they've realized through studies is that the number of female police officers rises and then it goes flat. And they're looking at why does that go flat? Well, we make the job a um, requirement that most people that decide to have children end up leaving the profession. So we've stated a flat 12%. For leadership, like myself, we're 2%. So why is that? Why is the rank of captain and above to you know chief of police only 2%? And when you compare that with the U.S. military, the numbers don't jive. So when you look at, at policing as a whole, our goal is not only to get women in law enforcement, but to have equity in law enforcement, to mirror the public that we serve. And in order to do so, we need people from all different backgrounds, not just females and not just males, but to serve the community, we need to be very diverse. Y'all have already had a day of these conversations already. What have been some of the things y'all are discussing? What have been some of the ideas that have been brought forward about how to increase women in law enforcement and retain them beyond just those first few years? Well, not only did we partner with the 30 by 30 initiative, we partnered with NOLI, the National Association of Women Law Enforcement Executives, which looks at policing across the country and where do women fit into policing. And so between our two partners and our local partners, we're able to set the groundwork, a little framework for how do we make the department diverse and how do we serve the community. So as I would look at the training that we received here over the last two days at UMMC has been 
different folks talking about experiences they have within their own agencies and and how do we develop best practices what's work working for one agency may not have been attempted by another agency so we're sharing best practices and we're learning from each other what does it mean to have a larger female presence in law enforcement what can that mean for the community well, when I remember when I first came on the police department in 1986, as a young police officer, female, going to calls, if a victim of a crime was a female or a child, there was a natural, um, and there was a natural attraction to a matronly figure. And so I realized that at a very young age. So I think when when a um, a young person, a young female, and I meet out in the community and they say, wow, I didn't know you could be a police lady. And I tell them, you see me, you can be me. And so it's encouraging these young, this new generation, that they can be anything they want to be, whether it be a police officer or any public safety figure. Um, we want them to know that it's an open door um, to policing, and we hope to attract them. Once you – I also want to go on to the idea of attracting people in just this time right now. and Hiring has become so stringent across major – many industries, but especially law enforcement. Um, how do you think you can – address hiring more uh, women in, the, in law enforcement while also just trying to hire law enforcement officers in general? Well, the UMMC Police Department, we invest in our people. We not only hire them, we want to retain them. We want to look at their future and their career development. That's very important to us. We've seen um, success. I've only been here a little over under two years, and we see other police officers and young people asking to come to our department because of what we're doing. The foundation, myself and Deputy Chief Broman, are building here at UMMC. We are the newer department in the, in the state that people are like, wow, what's going on over there? I see all of their people attending training. I see them investing in their people. That's very important to us, to not only attract these individuals, but to retain them and to invest in them. What would be your message to women out there who are considering a career in law enforcement but are unsure because they do plan to have a family and they're concerned about if they can stay in the job for long term? I tell them to give me a call or come and see me at UMMC. I'd love to mentor anyone that's thinking about becoming a police officer, um, male or female. There's a lot for us to teach each other as I learn of the new generation. I, it's a learning. Um, I'm a lifelong learner, and I learn every day from the people that I communicate with in the community. What do you think are some of the solutions to just reassuring people that they can be in that career law enforcement and not feel the need to be pushed out? It's all about trust and transparency, and if you build trust with the employees, they will build trust with the community. And I feel that my department, we really instilled trust and transparency and being truthful, embracing the community. And if you do that with your department, you'll be fruitful with your community. That was UMMC Police Chief Mary Paradis. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.